Welcome everyone to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. Today I'm joined by Carol Clark, Roger Collum, Robin Pachetti and Natalia Martin to discuss scaling a gaming studio. Everyone has a question or statement on the topic, so I'll pass it on to Robin to ask Carol. What is the first question? Well, um, hello everyone. So I'm very happy to um, see all of you uh, again. And uh, we um, today, so we're going to be talking about how to scale a company. And I think everyone here has some very interesting experience to share. The uh, we're going to start with Carol. I think that you know, as a question regarding building, you know, a process to manage people, um, growth and and career, you know, in a studio. So. Um, I will pass the, the basically the, the question to Carol. She can express in a wider question. You know, she she thinks it's important. You know, and then we can do a roundtable and see. You know, if everyone has something to to add to this. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, so yeah, I think uh, there have been many challenges that we've faced here over the last sort of uh, eighteen months to two years, but. One of the the ones that's um, really tested me actually is how we build out. You know, we go from being a studio of about thirty people to a studio of nearly a hundred, um, and put a process and structure in place that helps us um, provide career progression and you know cl- clear career leveling and um objective setting in place for all of our people so that their career paths are clear um, and actually providing something for our people managers so that they can actually help manage that growth um, so i'm really interested to hear how other people have tackled that before yeah roger <laughs> uh, i'm i'm happy to talk about this uh, this is something that i'm rather passionate about um, i especially think you know in my career um, having been on the other side of that equation where you feel like, hey, I f- believe I'm somewhere else in my career than your manager is letting you be and asking them, hey, give me something concrete to work on so that I can then show evidence that I am at that level. And then they also struggle with being able to do that. Um, I, I find that as a as a manager myself, I tend to be very empathetic to those that are ambitious, especially those that want to continue to progress in their career. So one of the things me and a partner of mine uh, at DICE have done um, is, so every job has a very specific list of things that indicate these are the things within the role that qualify you being qualified for that role. And it could be like 50, 80 things um, that a lot of people get together and debate and that there's like a common cultural agreement that these are the things that go let's say from a producer one to a producer two and so on and so forth and then what we did was we took that list and we put it in a spreadsheet and we put each item on a scale of zero to four zero being no experience at all one i'm growing i'm learning i need to learn two I'm doing it fine, three, I'm there, four, I'm excelling at it. And we let the person rate themselves. And then me, myself, privately will rate them. And then we'll compare our numbers together and have a discussion about like, where are they on that on that scale? And, you know, according to the chart, if they average a three, they're there. They're already doing the job. They should be promoted. Um, and then I let... You know, I let my team sort of, if they want to game it and figure out how to make the pieces work, because everybody has strengths and weaknesses. I don't expect any one person to be flawless across every single achievable vertical. Um, you know, I've got plenty of <laughs> room to grow myself in all sorts of ways. Um, and we found that that I've found that that was a very, very sort of acceptable and equitable way to do it, where you get buy-in immediately with your report because they're like, yeah, I agree to those numbers. We both have come to an agreement and then we can create a career plan in order to um, help them get to the next level. And so, yeah, it's it was something that I've been dying to have for, I mean, the last 12 years. And uh, I was very fortunate to work with someone uh, in my previous, in my current role, who uh, we were able to sit down and really come up with this plan on how to make this work. So, so your your suggestion is to uh, use skill metrics, you know, pretty much, and, and progression path that are creating a framework that is understandable by everyone to so understand their own growth. Um, so that's a, that's a very good tool. It takes time also for every discipline, you know, in the growing studio to establish this, you know, vision, but it's actually a good exercise because it's empowering, you know, every department heads and, and leads to take ownership of like how they want their team to grow. And, and it's, it's 
transparency across organizations. And it's usually also connected then to eventually to the financial reward attached to some, some role. So yeah, we, we, we've been doing that at Client Games as well. Uh, when we're trying to do set this up, you know, very early. It was very challenging, actually, because a lot of the actual leads were also themselves pretty junior. So for them to understand what it takes, um, so getting them to understand, like, okay, but there's like the skill, you know, hard skill development, but the people management development as well, you know. And what I would like to also maybe add to what you're saying, you know, is the, the also the challenging part is when you're growing so fast, you're going to hire people up, you know, above people that were there for 10 years or 15 years. And that's a hard thing for them because they might, you know, feeling pretty upset about it. And I had personally discussion with a very ambitious, you know, very driven, you know, um, individual. Um, and I told him, yeah, we, we're gonna hire a head of production. He said, well, I'm already a senior producer. Why can I not be? Well, say, well, you know, honestly, you know, um, there is these elements that we're not even doing in the studio at all. And there's no one to actually teach them to you. So it's gonna be super hard for you to learn on the spot something you have never seen done before. And so we managed to, you know, agree and have to make some kind of deal with the person say, well, you know, you're going to you're gonna be basically this right, the right hand of that person. And, you know, the mandate of that person will be to actually to teach you and to make sure that you're able. So, so this is like, you know, creating this kind of empathetic leadership, as you mentioned. I really love, you know, the way you're describing it, because it's exactly that. You have to understand your needs of your current people and to help them grow and finding their own path. Um, so, yeah, so, so that would be for me that I would like also, of course, to listen to Natalia. You know, she, she loves to have your perspective. Yes, uh, you are also interesting to listen to. Um, I agree to everything you said already, like this building a, a kind of a progression with the team is something that uh, it really helps to get together. And uh, it's something that we've also been working with uh, and it feels like for every month you get closer somehow just because you're listening to each other, not just work-related stuff, but also what we're going through as people. I mean, we have used, we have so many problems outside our works that somehow are changing the way we work and stuff like that. And if we don't acknowledge that, we will break and we will suffer more than be more of a happy company, you know, like sharing uh, like the good and bad times together and face them uh, in the best uh, manner possible so yeah um something that i feel that maybe we should get a bit better is about getting often to meet you know personally that i haven't done much and it was very good what uh, Colum said about this progress and you know shaking together that was a very good um, tips for us so thank you <laughs> yeah. yeah um so so carol we, we're just trying to offer some of the like the insights we have and and i think you've been in the field maybe i was wondering if you had some things you tried and that didn't work you know that could be interesting as well so like um, yeah um I think it has been just the laying some rules that maybe are too um, rigid you know and forgets about the the human part um I remember that um a while back uh, one of the guys was sick at home and we were working like from home so it was like no problem that maybe to chat a little bit with their co-workers while sick it will be something nice to him to recover faster and looking forward to work you know and feel like welcoming some kind of family and instead I said no it's not proper to do this you're going to just fuck it up for the, the team you know like but then a, a, a bit later I got sick <laughs> and I felt like shit I really would like to you know pop up and say hello to them and see how they're doing and just then go back to bed so it was like you know eye-opening to just be that you know to go through yourself certain stuff and then being a little bit too rough on the other people you know that are also suffering stuff so yeah we're like opening you know and making our own rules and uh, depending on you know how things happen and stuff like that most mostly learning about about the, the needs we have so but yeah it was a bit you know feel bad from my side they, they to not agree to have like this open so it came back to me <laughs> like a punch. <laughs> so you learn like that sometimes. And um, yeah, it was something something else that didn't really work with our community. It was to make this um, the ambassadors of Killmonde games and it didn't work. It started to be like too competitive in a bad way. I mean, 
you can be like playful and have fun competitive and then be like very awful and terrible competitive and that's something that we whew, didn't want to have <laughs> so we cut it right away i was so embarrassed to let them the, the like the, the fans know that no this is not going to happen more so yeah i mean like having those those moments of oh okay you need to be more open to realize um how people work you know like if you put out something it will react somehow so it's very nice to yeah, to observe somehow learn from the things that we do wrong <laughs> in the picture yes. yeah it's just a very good point you know like the, um, mm -hmm. we've all been struggling you know to how to adapt you know with new rules and new systems as we have the pandemic going it's an additional layer uh definitely something that really made you know growing companies you know while we're working remotely an extremely hard and you know uh challenge you know, communication new rules about how to be in this situation. So it's a very good point. Um, Ari, you wanted to say uh, something? Yeah, I just want to think about like the question, building a process to manage people's career growth. Uh, I just wanted to kind of touch on kind of this aspect a little bit. Uh, so I'm thinking, um, and this is to the floor, by the way, uh, like when you're building a process, I just wanted to come, kind of come back to that part of the question. Has anyone thought about what process they've kind of thought about making to like manage people's career growth, like the process side of things. Yeah. Um, does anyone want to answer? I think that like, I would like to let like, someone else start. <laughs> have you thought about it, Carol? I have thought about very little else for for months. Um, and what's interesting is I've actually, so we're literally at the beginning of rolling out or testing out a framework that we've built in partnership with an amazing HR partner that we found actually, an external consultancy um, that have been coming in and doing amazing work with us. Um, and actually, that's a really good point. Just to kind of segue a second. Actually, if you'd asked me like two, two or three years ago, I would have said that my preference was to use an in-house people or HR team to do this. I didn't have that in-house people slash HR team to do that with at TAG, um, which is what kind of forced me to go outside and find an external consultancy to work with. But actually, it, it was very serendipitous that that happened because particularly the two ladies that we found, the consultancy that we found, I actually have a ton of experience of doing this, not with game studios necessarily or even tech businesses, but they've done this a number of times for other businesses. So actually they understand the process of going about constructing something and actually their distance and their ability to be dispassionate um, has been really useful and they've built great relationships with me and um, the kind of the person in our business who's going to lead rollout of this for me um, and my people managers. So actually, like, like there's been some really interesting learning. But anyway, what I was actually going to say was having seen this done in a couple of companies that I have worked for previously, um, I was very, I had very strong feelings about how I wanted TAG to approach it. And it's interesting when a couple of you have talked about skills matrices um, and yours particularly, Roger, sounds immensely detailed. Like, I think I heard you say something like 50 to 80, uh, like, things. Is that, did I pick that up right? Okay. Um, so what we've gone for um, at, the, at the career framework level is less about the, the individual skills for each role than they are about the kind of general behavioural value-based qualities that we expect to see. And then we have a separate set of artefacts in terms of the performance profiles for the specific roles where the job-specific stuff that I imagine is what you're talking about with your 50 to 80 points in your skills matrix uh, uh, come in. But there's been a bit of a journey to get to that as well. And that that was actually driven by our external consultancy. They suggested that approach and, and I quite like it. Um, so I think for me, getting external uh, support from people who've actually done this a number of times before has ended up being invaluable um, because otherwise I think we would have just sat and trawled the internet and found a ton of stuff, you know, that other studios or other businesses have shared and then cobbled something together. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But I actually think that hopefully, you know, if you come and ask me in a year when it's been fully rolled out and I've got data from the teams here and they, you know, hopefully are really happy with it and feel like it's a really positive thing for them, um, I'll be very happy that we we chose this approach. 
although it's not been fast, it's taken a long time to get to this point. Um, so that's been frustrating for myself and for a lot of the team here because they're desperate for the clarity that I think it will bring, you know, but we hope it will bring. Um, so, yeah, so there's some thoughts. No, it's, it's really, um, really good points. It's like the, uh, bringing someone from the outside as in many different regards is extremely helpful because they, they, kinda, they don't have any, you know, uh, uh, stakes in any fights or in your in, in your struggles right so they're they can be pretty uh candid you know and pointing out the different elephants in the room whenever it's needed and that helps to address also some of the core issues because most of the time when you're growing people need to let go of responsibilities because then there is more specialization that needs to happen for everyone and that is a very difficult process to make sure that people don't feel basically that they're losing something in that process uh so yeah people from outside bringing this expertise is extremely extremely valuable that's a very good point um uh, was this answering properly your, your question yeah i just wanted to get a bit more detail on, like building a process but it sounds like um, yeah. if you were to build a process um, bringing in outside help is kind of a big thing to look at uh, i think it's time to actually move on to our second question uh, so roger yeah. what is your question and the context behind it okay so this is um something i i've also spent a lot of time thinking about um, uh, and something that I, I, I have an answer already in my head, but I am curious about other people sort of um, in the industry and how other leaders handle this. Um, I'm a big believer that as a manager, you need to be quite empathetic um, of your team. Um, and, and my question to you all is how important is that? And um, how do you train that in other managers? Who wants to take that first? I can I can try to get uh, I mean much perspective on that. You know, um, um, empathetic leadership is something I, I really believe in, and and I think building games, you know, is a team, you know, venture. You know, it's really about making people coming together and having them uh, contribute to a project. And usually, I would say there's a set of systems and you know processes to make things happen. But generally speaking, there's some kind of, you know, it's a human dynamic and you have to have shared values. And, and this is, empathetic leadership is a very strong one, but I think what is very important as well is that it's really embodied in the studio as a whole. And to make it happen, you know, you can be an empathetic leader as a, as a lead, right? With your team of like, I don't know, five or six people, but the, um, where it's become really important and really important to be supported to actually bring it to the other people in your team is when the whole studio embrace it. Uh, and, you know, it's always rolled from the top, you know, so it's much easier when the CEO is, you know, uh, themselves, you know, very, um, very empathetic, uh, empathetic, because they will, they will flow down and people will value those KPIs or ways to observe, you know, behavior and reward those behaviors accordingly. Um, and, and this is why um, I would like to say that my personal experience, you know, I've seen like, you can have great small team leaders, but like the truly, you know, amazing is when they're able to change things across the studio. But I also noticed in my career that it sounds amazing, but I would say you cannot find the DNA, you can't find the DNA of a company. So if the company basically doesn't care about that, it can actually backfire to try to be an empathic leader in an, an organization that is not empathic. empathic. Uh, so how do you coach that, right? I mean, we can go tactical discussions, you know, but, um, I don't want to hold too much of the the, the voice here in, in this discussion. Um, so uh, yeah, just um, what do you think, you know, Carol and Natalia? Yeah, um, well, about the importance, I think it's mostly so we can uh, can communicate and understand each other uh, and the needs that we have as, as people. That's why it's so important. And I think we all want to work in something that matters to us and that leaves something, you know, uh, not just for ourselves, but something bigger as well. And when we see something that it's uh, more communicative and everybody's part of it, it feels like, yeah, we're on the same boat and we're not like going against each other. So I think that's why it's important to take that take, especially when we make games. It's like... We're just playing with stuff, you know, <laughs> and um, and how we train it is just to allow us to be used that, you know, like uh, people trying to do something special and a game that maybe moves people, you know, and how we can achieve that, you know, we as developers going uh, to that part and listen to each other. So what are our dreams in this project and stuff like that? And I think a manager needs to be part of that process as well. Otherwise how you can manage something you don't understand. It's impossible. So play more games together or, you know, do silly stuff together or go eat something yummy and talk about life. I think that's the only way we can 
kind of train it, <laughs> be in the moment a lot. And yeah, you know, I can give you like an example. We're like super, now we're taking vacation and we just take five weeks of off. We don't see each other. We don't talk to each other. Everybody's off. But anyway, we have been coming to the chat and see, how are you doing, guys? And uh, I already talked to two artists and they send me a little bit of work that they've been doing under their, their free time because they just love the project so much. And that makes me feel very full, you know, like, oh, yeah, we're working on something they care. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of it's beautiful to see that. Uh, and I think uh, if we need to also build more honest, honesty with each other, I think we just need to there, you know, to be open with who we are as people and how we feel and stuff like that. Um, and we take the mental health and physical health very like, you know, daily, daily topic, you know, it's, it's nothing weird. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Um, I think there's one other tool we could also use. I mean, there's a set of tools we can use to like reward people for certain behavior. Like, because thematic leadership, I think if you were talking about training, um, you have, of course, leadership principles that you want to have in your studio, right? So try to, so you have those that are usually, you know, if it's well integrated, you know, in the recruitment processes, you know, in the the, the, the annual reviews, you know, from this and all these, you're, you're tracking the performance of every individual leaders and how they're scoring versus the values of the company and the values of the, of the leaders that you should have for that function like so skill metrics but as a people manager as well so so that but that's very also at the individual level right and then this question is how to make it as a team level as well and um, and this is how you create this kind of dynamic of connecting the individual you know motivations with the team motivations and the overall studio motivations and so like how do you create a systems you know to to make sure that people are incentivized to do it because we're still humans, right? And if your KPIs are 100% hardcore, you know, just do your strong KPIs and the human factor is not present. Um, so that is basically, you can work also on how you're getting collective feedback. Um, like, and that is also something that is very useful, like how you get, you know, how is my driving? And if you have those tools that you can say, what well, people tell you, how they're you doing? Um, these tools, uh, uh, they can be amazing, but they also can be double-edged sword as well. And that is also very important as well, because when we talk empathic leadership, we're talking about how it touch culture. And the question is, how do you make a culture that is inclusive, you know, when you have different people? And, and there's a very fine line between you know, being empathetic and basically also refusing any kind of conflict. And this is how basically, you know, we, we had, I had one of my um, reporters say that, I don't feel, you know, um, in, um, included, you know, in, in this culture because I feel that the company is way too nice all the time and I want to get stuff done. I'm working on it. So, and the question, like, how do we make sure that people that have different, you know, behavior, you know, can also be empathetic and what does that mean as well? And for different type of leadership styles, well, sometimes you might have an organization. So these are like open questions I need to be looked into. Um, I think it'd be on the scope of that podcast to go in every single one to see like how we, we can hack it. Um, but um, but yeah, I would say generally speaking, you know, as um, try to create incentives to make sure that people want to be empathetic and then be rewarded. Um, and I will point one thing, which one tool that I have, let's say, um, my personal grudges a bit about is like the 360 feedback tool. You know, it's um, I've seen it use it well and I've seen it use it terribly. Uh, I work for a very big corporation, like we're very very big, you know, and they were using it. But you drink the Kool-Aid and say you're developing for leadership principles and how empathetic you are. But it was also yeah, all the soft values were used as well for a way to, um, um, how do you call this? To drive certain agendas for individuals, right? And and if you're not empathetic enough, like what does that mean, you know? And so that was not the example using that specific aspect, just to give an example, but it's... Um, Making measure, make it measurable, you know, and doesn't. It's not about being friends with everyone because all else you create the issue that no one wants to raise the key problems. No one wants to have a backbone, you know, and fight for their ideas because they don't want to be labeled as not being empathetic enough as a leader or not, you know, agreeable enough. Um, so this is the fine lines you have to, to walk through. And if you have any insights, uh, <laughs> Roger, I would love to because that's a that is, it's the devil's in the details, right? Like you know, and. Yeah, that's super interesting, I think, to, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to your, your, your thoughts on that. Before we give it to Roger, I want to give uh, Carol a chance. Uh, Carol, what do you think about empathetic management? Can you train it? Um, I think you can to a degree, yeah. I think I agree with, uh, you know, you, Roger. It's massively, massively important, and it's a topic very close to my heart and something that I strive for personally. 
I think you can train it, but I I think that you can only train it in people who already kind of have that inherent quality to begin with and actually have a desire to be a people leader. And, you know, this subject has been, I think, discussed to death, so I won't dwell on it, but the idea that this industry can be quite bad for it, you know, we, we end up uh, going into organisations and inheriting people managers that perhaps actually are not, you know, their strengths are not in people management, but they've ended up in those positions by virtue of being time served or, you know, they're just a bit older and more matured in terms of human years. So I think making sure that, and, and this is something that it matters very much to me, making sure that our people managers want to be people managers and actually understand what that means. And for me, there's a huge responsibility. Like, and like, I have to be careful not to get crippled by that, thinking about like how many people's careers ultimately I'm responsible for, right? And actually their lives to a degree. So I want the people in positions of leadership here to really think about what, what that means. Um, but then to actually come back to Roger's question, how we train it, I think we could do a huge session on the, the specifics as, um, as Robin alluded to. But I think for me, what's important is having leaders in our business who live and breathe it and are really good examples of it. So that and very senior leaders. So to your point, Robin, it is very difficult if you're, you know, the CEO or whoever the kind of the top of the company is. If they are not really that person, it can be tricky, although not impossible, right? Um, if they put the right structure around them and if the company believes in this. Um, but And assuming that's true, I think having some senior people in the business who are great examples of it um, so that people can kind of look and see, oh, that's what good or that's what excellent looks like. Because then it's 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 real. It's in action every day. It's not it's not a scenario that you're reading about in a book or listening to you know a case study or reading about a case study or or whatever. Um, and then additionally, having people in your business who can coach the other managers. And for me, it has to be very scenario based. So I know what you were saying, Robin, about not loving necessarily three sixties. And I agree, when they're done well, they are so powerful. When they're not done well, they can actually be really destructive. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people's uh, experience is often more on the latter end of that scale, which is very sad. So for me, when I think about how I try and work, certainly, and I'm not 100% successful with this, for sure, but um, using very specific scenarios to coach the people managers through. So talking about an example where perhaps more empathy could have been shown or actually hopefully more often using examples of where there was a great you know a really amazingly empathetic approach taken to a particularly tricky situation because someone perhaps Robin I can't remember mentioned uh, empathy being taken too far and being used as a justification to avoid difficult conversations actually the easiest way to have a really tough conversation is to deploy massive empathy right I should get that on a t-shirt massive empathy um so so for me it's like I suppose it's twofold just to sum up quickly for you Roger I think it's having like peppering your business your org with a few very senior very visible personable leaders who demonstrate who they live and breathe empathetic leadership and then having them or external coaches you know if your business can sustain that come in and work with the people leaders, the people managers, to to continually work on their ability to deal with more and more tricky, more complex, excuse me, situations using empathetic leadership, but working through the scenarios in real time or as close to real time is how I have, I think I've been most successful personally. Awesome. Uh, how about Roger to just kind of uh, close that yeah, question? Yeah, I love that. That's, there's a lot of really great points here it's uh it, i think it's fantastic especially to meet a lot of like-minded people there, there's there's so many comments that i want to have but i'll try to start the ones that i i i for me have changed a lot of the way that i think about things i think that i totally agree it, it has to come from top down um, um i think that you can make a difference in like localized spaces but for it to be most effective it does have to come from the top and hopefully you do have sort of someone at a leader um, at the most senior level who can then demonstrate that for the whole team so that they can also take that on. Um, I think, um, uh, Carol, a spot on the money with um, 
you know, th there is a certain inherent quality that some people have that can take to this much more easily than those that, that don't. I, I think that you can train those that are eager to learn, even if they don't necessarily have it in them. I know I have a friend who's on the spectrum and he, but he comes to me for coaching on just like personal people related things because he, those things don't trigger in his brain. He just doesn't understand sort of like when people are upset or people are whatever, that's, those are just things that don't click with him, but he wants to, to lead and help people from a real true and honest place. And so he's, he's eager to learn it, even if it's, he has his own sort of speed bumps on his journey. But I do think, you know, coming back to the very first topic, that's super important uh, about these sort of people leaders that we hire. I think in the industry, oftentimes people believe that the way that they advance in their career is to through people leadership. And you have to, I think organizations, especially big ones, need to create multiple progression paths for their people so that you have people who can go be expert in the area without having to be people leaders because you know, let's say that I'm someone that doesn't want to lead people. I have no interest in it, but I believe that's the where I can go in order to make more money or have more influence or do all these other things. But that's not necessary if you have the organi your organization, I think, um, planned and, and managed in such a way that you can have these, sort of these principal people who are like the technical experts or the design experts or the people who are going to, you know, be the expert in a particular part of their field. While you then give all of the sort of people leadership to those that are eager to learn more about people leadership uh, and and want to do that. Um, I think, you know, the, the last thing that I, I want to say that that, I, that it's kind of affected me recently that I've been thinking a lot about, I think that the further you get in your career as a leader, the farther you get from the people who are just coming into the industry. And that is so important to remember because the thing that sort of a junior animator cares about is not the same thing that I care about. Where I might care about KPIs for the business, they care about like making something awesome that their friends can see when it, that, that thing launches, right? And like being able to remember that and relate to that and be able to speak to that so that they are, you know, if you just come at like a junior person with KPIs or these other things, they're like, I don't know what any of that means. And you even though you explained it, it doesn't, it doesn't process. You know, I, I think then that can be really off-putting, um, and to to guide people into the into these roles that are more leadership roles, yeah, it has to start from the very beginning. If you're lucky in your career to meet these people, and help them up up through that that path. Anyways, this is a, a lovely conversation. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, thank you very much uh, for like sharing. I think this is a we could have actually a podcast just about this specific topic. I think because it's. Uh, so much about you know the concept, the theory, the applications, you know, and um, something to think about. <laughs> so um, I also had a question, you know, um, should you be willing to pay above market rates to basically scale up faster, right? Try in, in a very competitive, you know, job market right now. How do you get the best talents, you know, on time, budget, you know, and the right qualifications. Um, so yeah, I would love to have your insights about like what's your perception on that. And I would love to share mine as well, you know, and, and I would say the answer would mostly, it depends, but I would love to hear your, your thoughts, you know, about the best way to approach that. When you, you have to grow fast, you know, and it's challenging. Yes. You want to say something? I just saw. Yeah, I'll just recommend it. We kind of do this in order. It would be quite cool, I feel like. Uh, so I want to start with uh, Carol. What do you think? Um, gosh, this is another one of our great challenges. Um, it's a great question. Um, I think that for a studio of our I need to be diplomatic because some of our people might listen to this. For a studio of our size, we have to really watch our pennies. I think, you know, that's true for a lot of studios, but certainly we're at the smaller end, so we don't have huge bags of money that Mark is sitting on, he wishes. Um so we have to be very budget conscious, but also clearly wanting to attract the best people that we can and pay really well, like pay, pay well, pay fairly based on what the market is dictating for a given role. Right. Um, so this is a conversation that we probably end up having weekly or nearly weekly because, you know, we're constantly hiring and there's there really great candidates coming in that are causing us to ask hard questions within our business um, I would be lying if I didn't tell you that occasionally we've made hires that have completely tested our internal salary bands we absolutely have we've made a couple of those because the skill set was just you know it's so niche so so uncommon or so in demand 
and is so important for the thing that we're working on, we have to kind of breach our our usual um, bandings. We do do that on occasion. Um, we ask ourselves very hard questions internally before we do that. Um, so it's not something that we commonly do, but we do accept the need uh, for it. Um, and in terms of how we find people, um, the thing... The, the thing that we changed that ended up being the most successful for us, if I'm really honest, and Harry's not going to like this, bless you, um, was actually reducing our reliance on agencies, or I should say being much more selective about the agencies that we work with, because we do still work with agencies, but we massively reduced the number that we were working with. And we got an in-house recruiter who is absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, she has just been amazing. So I think I could be wrong about the exact numbers and she'll kill me if I am. But I think we we hired 22 people last year. So as a studio whose headcount is about 65 right now, I think like that's pretty impressive, you know, and, and there was a team behind her onboarding them who just did fantastically well. I don't know how they're all still standing. Um, but just getting that in-house recruitment presence and she clearly works with other agencies. You know, she goes out and, and works with um, people like you, Harry, um, kind of selecting the right agencies for the roles that we're looking for. And we've also just, I'll, I'll finish and, and let someone else talk, but the last thing on this actually was we invested really heavily too. And part of this is just because of who Ali is as a person in terms of our recruitment partner. She's really good at the relationship side of things. But we invested very heavily in picking agencies that we could build genuine partnerships with. So like they build a relationship with, and there's one in particular that I'm thinking of, they work so hard to understand what we're doing, the roles that we've got live, which roles are a priority. They come in every month or two actually for coffee and they just chat away. They sometimes spend some time with me just to really deeply understand who we are as a business. So when they bring us candidates, clearly often the candidates don't um, end up being hired. But we know when we see candidates from that particular agency that they're really high quality. Like you can see why they've brought them. It's not just them chucking names at us, which we really appreciate because we're tiny. So our like we don't have a huge amount of capacity to deal with thousands of candidates that aren't ultimately the right candidates for us. Um, so so I suppose those those would be my main kind of responses to you, uh, Robin. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing. You know, uh, so um, in order, basically, you know, like um, who wants to come next <laughs> and 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 chip in? Yeah, Natalia. Yes. So I find what Carol said also very uh, interesting, um, and it, it's just like that, right? That every every moment in our what we're doing, depending on what we're doing and what we need, it's um, we need to accommodate somehow um when it comes to be like going to the question paying above the rate um, um for the faster hire it feels like um it comes to the project sometimes you really just need to do that extra move to get to a certain level um for example for us uh, we are doing our first game in 3d and i come from a background that we only worked in 2d so it's like a completely new world and for that, we needed to, you know, just add uh, to our team somebody that could drive us to the, the goal that we were planning. So it's kind of for that, of course, you need to kind of uh, maybe put some extra money and there's more knowledge in there and stuff like that. But in the overall, we try just to keep it like in the beginning, very, you know, like trying who is uh, fitting with the with the team and how the team changes with a new person. So we try to take it very slowly. Once we did it very quickly, like five people at the same time, and we were like panicking <laughs> because we didn't understand how to do this work. So yeah, it has been a lot of trial and error kind of way for us at least. But I would definitely like have an open door, you know, to that things can be differently depending on, yeah, on when, where we are. With the company. Yeah, it is very um, interesting because we have like a different perspective. Uh, how many people is in your studio today, Natalia? Uh, right now we are 15 people. 15, um, yeah. And then yes. we have perspective, you know, where it is basically closing to a bit of 100, if I remember well. And and then basically, Roger, I would love to know what you're thinking about, you know, a few bit more, a few hundreds more <laughs> people. Uh, how would you yeah. see yeah, that? Yeah, we have uh, quite a few. 
um, you know, belonging to a major corporation is definitely a different beast than than indie dev. And I've 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 you know I I started my career at a studio that was at sixty five, um, where it was you know and growing, um, and then eventually they they got to two thousand. Um, so it's an interesting sort of journey. I, I think that for me, um, there, there's a couple of things. One, um, before I, I would even have the conversation about more money, um, it's the culture fit. Um, if, if they don't fit culturally, then uh, it, it's not a good fit for me at all. Um, and it has to be cross-functionally a culture fit. It can't just be like they get along with an engineer gets along with other engineers. It has to be an engineer that also culturally gets along with artists and designers, producers, so on and so forth. I think that you know, um, toxicity is one of those things that slowly gets bred and it's, you just it have to, you know, and every interview is like a first date and it just has to be, you have to make sure that you feel very comfortable that this person has the same values as you do, the same values as your company, the same goals and vision. Um, and then of course, um, if they're a unicorn in the sense that they're just providing a service that is um, unique or or of high demand, I think that in today's market, you have to be willing to spend more. Um, because I think for all of us, there's like a baseline that we have to offer all of our employees. Uh, COVID's changed changed so much about the way that we work and operate. You know, um, a lot of big companies are, you know, they have still internal discussions about, do we do remote work? Do we do hybrid? I'm like, well, if you want to hire people, you're going to have to do remote work. That's just, because if you don't, someone else will, and then they will get, the really great people that you're looking for. Um, so yeah, to, to me, it's, it's, it's culture first and then sort of need. The, the other thing that I have, I guess I'm fortunate uh, in my current situation is the amount of outsourcing that I can do in order to sort of fill in areas that I can bolster certain areas where I haven't, then I can then focus on hiring and the, the, the parts that are just sort of not outsourceable, um, you know, like really high-end engineering, um, engine rendering, physics, things like that. Like, you know, um, but there's a lot of areas in the industry now that, I mean, a lot of people don't want to, you know, a lot of devs, they don't, they don't like it and I understand, but it is true. There is a lot of really exceptionally talented contractors and outsourcers out there who don't want to work full time with the company and will be happy to work with you one-on-one um, -on -one and give you excellent service. Um, and so that's the, that's sort of the other tool that I lean on when I'm looking at sort of the overall big picture on how to staff, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, and I'm, I've been really quiet because I can really babble a lot. Um, I, the, the, the thing that I remind sort of, um, I try to remind the, the lead, lead leads in at my studio is that, you know, attrition is uneven, you know, and so you can have these massive plans about how you're going to staff and where you're going to look, but, you know, from day over day, you know, if someone's been at your studio, if, if you're working at a studio, that has been around a long time. If someone's at your studio and they're like in their year 20, and they're like, well, I'm, I'm going to leave. You know, you can't really blame them because they know what's they're going. You know, they know what's happening next. They're going to build the next version of whatever you've been building. They want to go do something new, and now you have to figure out how to, you know, readjust your capacity and find people with a similar skill set. Especially if you're working in a proprietary engine. So it is a very interesting conversation. I think that you know you still have to be fiscally responsible. You have to decide. You know how many how many bullets, so to speak, do you have in that gun? Because there's only so many that you can fire so, to get the right people at the right grade um, uh, and not hurt your the rest of your overall business. Yeah. So uh, thank you uh, for for sharing basically your experience, all of you. And I will basically like to well share my thoughts as well. But I think it's um, pretty happy that we had actually uh, the podcast people are perfect for the discussion because we have people with journey from different. Um, uh, size of companies and different perspective and in that specific question it's absolutely interesting to understand how things evolve because when you're at 15 people and you're let's say before before you're actually making revenues or you're not breaking even yet time is of the essence and you can't afford to have any kind of delays and even if you have to pay basically even 50 percent more for that engineer you absolutely need or whatever skill is very unique that you need to deliver on your deadline until you're like running out of funding, you can't afford to have any more delays. You know, if you're waiting six months to find the perfect fit and have more criteria to fit, basically you'll be out of a business and you'll have failed your deadline, you're dead. And then you have the other spectrum, which is basically, you know, more established companies that have been like multiple projects, can be thinking more strategically. They have a bit more, you know, um, they can 
afford to be more demanding about who would be the right fit and they can think longer term. And, and I think this is where it's super interesting because then you have like companies like Tag, like Carol basically is it in the middle of you're, you're making money, you're making profit, but then you still to have to adapt, you know, to, to find this equilibrium beyond, between we want to be more structured, we want to be more transparent, we want to be more fair, but at the same time, we still have the pressure of like, if we are failing that project, it's gonna be extremely, extremely painful and we'll have to need to let people go. Um, so this is the, this is, I think in the industry, one thing that people, you know, would benefit to know more across multiple disciplines and across communities, things change. Actually, you don't operate the same way studio at 15 and the early stages and as you grow, grow, and that means that transition needs to happen. And in my personal experience, I've met this multiple times where young founders, for example, because I did a lot of consulting for like a lot of young studios, they came with all those ideas. They came when they learned that from AAA or and they want to apply them in their young startup and says, but you can't afford that. You know, it, it, it just, you have to be realistic on what is possible. And, and I think this is the kind of like reality check that is sometimes harder to do, to do as a younger studio. And you, that's why also you can also enjoy working in a bigger company that, you know, will take the time to think more about culture and all of these aspects. And on that, I'll do a fantastic transitions to that, the questions that Natalia has about the, um, I'll let you introduce yourself. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, about uh, the question that I had, it was mo mostly about the company culture and how or what strategies can we have to, you know, help new members, incoming people to understand it. And yeah. so, and for me, it has been like very important to set up this culture very early so we could somehow feel like we were growing um, on our terms, kind of. Um, as uh, my husband and I started this company, we were like, nowhere <laughs> like no budget uh, nothing we didn't know even how to make games so we were like very lost and when we finished our first game and it became became kind of a cult <laughs> game so we got this money to spend into doing a game that we were very like oh, our dream game you know so we wanted to have those those uh, like the culture itself very like grounded from the beginning so yes uh, it has been um, challenging on how to you know share that with new people so i would love to hear how you feel about that any experiences to share how how roger roger what do you think yeah i uh this is, this is a great question um especially um i feel like culture once it started at a studio it propagates and and persists throughout the life of its existence. And once it get really gets its claws in there, it, it doesn't really change. And I've talked to lots of people all over the industry, you know, and lots of different companies, and they talk about their own company cultures. And they'll talk about founders who established, you know, the studio to be in a certain way from like 20 years ago, and they still stick to those values and the, those mentalities um, just even, you know, 20 years later. And so, yeah, it, establishing it early on and what you want it to be is like so critical to have that vision to be able to communicate to others. I, I like what you said earlier, um, Talia, about how you, um, you know, breaking bread, having lunches, meeting with people, things like that. You know, um, at my my last job, we used to, you know, before COVID, you know, um, we everyone, you any new employee was allowed to expense their lunch for two weeks with anybody that they wanted to take the lunch that allowed them to meet as many people as they could throughout the studio. And people would be like, yeah, I want a free meal, but then they would also make relationships and learn about people and learn who they are as, as human beings. And, you know, like culture is so much about just the interactions of us as humans and who we are and how we relate to one another and how we communicate and how we handle difficulties and challenges and how we dream and all of these other things, you know, culture is all about that. It's like the spectrum, uh, you know, and, and every company's in different places in the spectrum when it, with, with regard to that and just communicating that and then sharing that expectation with new people. You just do that through the, you know, the rest of the, your, your studio, right? Your studio in, its, in and of itself sort of says, this is who we are. Do you want to be part of this? And then people just learn that this is the right, you know, the way that the the that your your company grows. I think that I think that you know, so you were saying that your studio is at 15 people. I think you're, that's such an awesome work from a culture perspective. I think that's such an amazing place to be. When I first started my job here at Dice, you know, I'm coming. I came into a studio that's 30 years old, 
and this, and I'm like, I want to do these things about the culture. I want to change. Like, I want us to be more empathetic. I want us to think about these, how we handle these certain problems. And, you know, it's just an uphill battle because people are just, the culture is just so entrenched. Um, and while it's a very interesting challenge, it just, there's this very romantic sort of special situation that I think is like you're in where you get to just sort of establish with you and your husband right at the beginning, this is who we are. Um, so I think that's really great. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> so let's hear Carol, maybe some, some insights there. Yeah. What do we do? So I think there's an element of this that is about like, that comes from your onboarding process, you know, and what the first, the first days and weeks and months for a new person look like and how intentional you are as a business about crafting that experience. And this is another really a big area of focus for us and has been for a while because we've been, been onboarding like crazy. Um, and one of the things that I talk to the team here about a lot is thinking about designing the the employee experience with as much care and love as we do the player experience in our products and actually using some of the same approaches. Um, so I think that's about setting expectations and making sure, being really careful that everyone that a new person comes into contact with is someone who's actually hyper aware of how important the first impressions are. And actually I was talking to Ali the other day about this. I was reading about something really random. It was to do with like baby animals and the term that was used was imprinting, right? So it was all about imprinting learned behavior on baby ducklings or something. And I really loved that term. So as I've been working on our onboarding process, I was like, we're gonna use that term imprinting so that people, as we're onboarding new people, are thinking about what is it that we really want to make sure we're imprinting into this new person, right? So we strive to be an empathetic organisation, although I've probably never used that exact expression with people here, right? But we try and live that. We have different ways of talking about it. We're also really focused on delivery because with the size we're at, with the product that we're working on, with the partner that we're working with, like delivery really matters. There's not, there's no wiggle room here. So we can be really nice and kind people who really care about our employees, but actually guys, you have to do your job and you have to do it well and you have to communicate with us and all of these things. Um, and then I think, so I think the kind of, the, the initial experience for new people is, is a huge part of it, the imprinting, if you like. I'm just gonna use that word all the time. And then and then there's a part of it that is is just trusting that you've built your organization and you've taught your organization well enough that in the main as people come in and start to get their feet under the table and they're no longer new people that the behaviors that they observe in their co-workers and the practices that they adopt are are healthy they're positive they're contributing to effective efficient development process and then it just becomes a way of life and, and and on the odd occasion where you make a bad hire, and it happens to all of us, it can't not, right, with the volume of people that we are all hiring, you're going to make bad hires from time to time. And we have to normalise that, right? We try and minimise it, but we have to normalise the fact it will happen. Um, what's interesting for me is, you know, we've we've done such a great job of building a strong and hopefully generally healthy and positive culture here that on the odd occasion we make a bad hire, it's actually pretty obvious. And, and it's like, people are like, oh, okay, there's something here that we need to deal with. And it's not necessarily that person's fault either, right? Like you don't even need to assign blame. We just need to be grown up and say, do you know what? This is actually maybe not working. How do we, how do we find a solution that's mutually acceptable? Um, but actually being brave enough and teaching your org, teaching your people managers that they are empowered to deal with those things and actually not just empowered to deal with a bad hire, actually very much required to put their hand up and say, mm, I think we've got an issue here, I need help because we either need to recover this or we need to find a different solution. So. So it's not just about um, how we how we deal with the kind of positive side of this, actually accepting that sometimes it's going to go wrong and part of protecting our culture and continuing to improve it is making sure that we're removing impediments. Yeah. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank yes. you. Yeah. 
I think in my perspective, there's every company is a kind of a journey, right? So how they're managing culture um, is w- when you are in a startup mode, right? In the very early stage, the most challenge you have is that people actually don't even know what culture is. Like they, they're not, you don't have enough people are trained as people, leaders, managers, don't have enough experience. So the first challenge, if you want to have a culture that is you know, healthy, you know, is just to have a shared understanding of what is culture, what does that mean, you know, what it translates, what are the impact of actions and how does it change culture? So like, this is the first phase, you know, like culture exists, what does it matter? Why do should we care, right? And in a survival mode of startups, you know, it's a very important question because it's time and time is extremely precious. And usually the middle stage companies, they'll say that, okay, we understand the importance of culture, and but now we need to define what is our culture, right? We, we went through all those phases and these startup formation years actually define the culture, right? Even the it's not what you write on the wall, right? The culture is what you have, right? And usually if they did a good job, then they will have a better culture to start with when they start defining it uh, because it's the culture you have and the culture you want, which are like very um, different things. And companies usually focus on what they want they want and not the one they have, right? So this is something about how to help them move to that level. And this is usually at the mid-stage level that companies wonder, like what's saying that. Like, if you have, there's no size actually, it will just depend on how mature people and how they're growing and the business is maturing as all. But it's not a question of size, it's more a question of um, maturity, I would say, and priorities. And the third layer, which is in big organizations, is how you scale culture. And this is a different challenge because now you don't have, people don't look anymore at the CEO or the founders of companies anymore. The company is too big for that. You know, you need, how do you make sure that every single leader in the organization is embodying those culture and is able to teach it and to make sure that, you know, everyone in the organization still follows the same culture and it doesn't dilute, right? And this is when you start to have like more, how do you enforce it? You know, how do you recruit from the start, check it, evaluate it? And that is starting to be more, way more systemic on how you're approaching it. Um, very few companies actually able to do that properly right uh, and it's a work on some things maybe not so but yeah. it's um but yeah so that, that's that's my input on that i would say it's quite interesting to see like this journey of different challenges and um i would like the last one i would like to say it's because it's one of the most painful when you talk about bad hires yeah what I've seen is bad hires, as we know, can hurt a lot of business. But it's been very rare for me that I've seen, say, early and mid-size company, they'd go a bad hire that was also a high performer. And that is something that is extremely toxic for the long run and has tremendous impact. And this is where you see you test actually your culture because you can say all the beautiful things if when, you know, things supposed to shove, you know, I say, that's the expression, you know, um, if you're not willing to let go that super high performer that will impact your day-to-day business, if you're not willing to take that cost, basically, your culture is not about people. It's about performance alone. And yeah, it's a very difficult balance and this is how you're going to eat the cost, you know, of that. Um, but yeah, and this is where maturity of leaderships and it comes from the top. I've seen organizations that kept those leaders when it was really done and it will the company was pretty healthy or they're all like, and people also rejected some of the new leaders that were too toxic or whatever, right? And the management said, no, we're going to keep them. We need them right now. It's critical. And that created down a spiral and they had a lot of churn coming out after that because of that the company culture changed. Question was that the true culture or the interesting topic, I would say, in terms of that. But um, yeah, so that, that, that would be interesting discussion as well. I would say to see like, how do you, how do you make those choices and how do you make sure you hire well at the beginning when you have those pressures, right? So um, I would like to conclude my side and say, there's no perfect solution and one cookie cutter strategy. It depends on the environment, who you have, you know, and what resources and your situation, everything. So the best thing is to share knowledge with other people and, you know, try to find out the best way to deal with specific situations. And um, yeah, our industry is pretty amazing. If you reach out on LinkedIn, you know, you might find someone like Roger who will answer the call to when I'm asking like, hey, can we have mentors to help people and just, yeah, people very senior willing to help. So I'll invite everyone to do that. And if you need a very special, you know, uh, talent for some time, you know, I think Ari might be help, able to help you uh, <laughs> with the ocean job. Thanks for the little shout out there, Robin. Forgive me everyone for my lost voice for listeners and also uh, my guests. But yeah, I think that would be a good place to conclude. Uh, just for everyone listening, also I guess I thought I wrote a bit of some notes on like everyone's questions. I thought it would be quite interesting to kind of like recap. So when it comes to building a process to manage people's career growth, uh, one takeaway was for me is to get an outside perspective, whether it was from what Kara said to bring a whole team. But I feel like even uh, when I was reflecting on it, just bringing someone in to just take a look at it uh, from an outside perspective could be a nice way to do it. And when you're building a process to manage people's career growth, uh, column, sorry, uh, Roger mentioned the fact that 
some developers want to stay developers and not become people managers. So the fact that they have that opportunity uh, is really important. Otherwise, you could risk losing them. And on the second question, when it comes to empathetic management, I think we all kind of agreed when it came to leading by example. Uh, you have to lead by example, otherwise it won't happen. And also, some people just don't either aren't wired to do that or just aren't wired to become people managers. So you don't want to force people to become empathetic managers and think it's their fault. Uh, you got to be kind of like nuanced in that. And when it comes to paying above market to hire faster, I always have a we have a quite an interesting perspective for myself because I only do contract procurement, so the rate of a contractor is usually higher. But contractors are usually people who tend to be high performers, come in and you know start from day one. They don't need that much of an onboarding process. And like Robin said, it, if you treat it like an investment, like we have a paternity leave coming up in one month, we have nine months. We need someone. Do we stick to our principal or do we try to bring in someone because we're going to miss a deadline? Like you can pretty much make the calculation and make a decision based on that. And if it means paying 50% more because the savings are going to be 10x, then, you know, that's a decision for you to make. And when it comes to Natalia, to bring in uh, people's culture, I feel like it's really important to break bread. And also, at least in my onboarding process with Evolution, I think I met like nine, 10 people uh, in the whole interview process, which sounds pretty crazy, but it was done in like group ways and like Roger said the first impression is really important just to get everyone's vibe and not take it so seriously and not only me the candidate both of the people can you can see if people mesh together before you actually bring them on but even if they come in and then it's not a good fit making that difficult decision to kind of let them go early without even if they were a high performer I feel like it's really important because otherwise you can damage everyone's culture uh, for the sake of one which can be short-sighted uh, but yeah Thanks for everyone listening to that with my lost voice. Hopefully it comes through okay. But I thought there was a lot of good takeaways there, so it would be nice to recap. So I think we'll conclude there. This has been the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Carol, Roger, Robin, and Natalia for providing the insights. And thank you all at home for listening. If you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts or just want to chat, reach out to me on LinkedIn at Harry Foku. Foku is spelled P-H-O-K-O-U. Thank you.